Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Always happy to have someone back on the show and always happy to interview someone who hasn't been on the show before. We're fortunate enough to have both of those things happening. Today, we have James Nottingham, who is the creator of The Learning Pit. He's also its founder and CEO. And we also have Dr. Carmen Bergman, who is the managing director of The Learning Pit. James was on back in December of 2020, right in the thick of early stage pandemic. Fortunately, things seem a little better now. So a little bit of reflection on that. And then Carmen, this is your first time on Trending in Ed. Welcome both of you to Trending in Education. Thank, Thank you. you Lovely to be here. Be here. You know, sometimes when you listen to <laughs> shows recorded back in 2020, you're like, wow, really happy to be here because things got dark at times and we had to find some spirit and some inspiration. And that was part of why it was great to have you on originally, James, talking about the learning pit. We'll include links to our first conversation in the show notes. Also, it's learningpit.org for folks listening out there. If you want to understand more about what James and Carmen have going on, really interesting conversation. Your backstory, we always start with our guests' origin stories. Your story was pretty deep. Can you just quickly reacquaint our listeners with who you are and what the Learning Pit is? And then we'll spend a little more time with Carmen getting to know her better. Sure. Well, I was one of those classic school dropouts, hated school. I thought it was pretty irrelevant stuff. And having started, we have secondary schools here in the UK, starting from the age of 11. And within two months of starting at that school, my mother died and I went off the rails and mm. didn't quite know how to be and got labeled as a naughty kid and lived up to that label, I suppose, and got into all sorts of trouble and got kicked out of a couple of schools. And so the last thing on my mind was to go into education. One of the best days of my childhood was the day I left school. Yeah. We wear uniforms at school and I burned my uniform and that was it. I thought, no more will I cross that dark threshold that they call schooling. But then I bummed around a bit, did a bit of pig farming and uh, ended up in a chemical factory and didn't like either of those. And then I was offered opportunity to go do some voluntary work in apartheid South Africa. So this was late eighties. In fact, I was in South Africa in front of the gates of Victor Vestere prison in February, 1990, when Nelson Mandela was released. So it was a heady time mm -hmm. and one of the voluntary jobs that I did was to work in a school. And I found that I built a rapport with kids very quickly. I enjoyed the company of kids who maybe were, had troubled backgrounds themselves. And, yeah. and I found that I could build that rapport and, and communicate well with them. And so I thought, well, maybe this is where I go. I go into that side of things. So not school, but into, shall we say that alternative provision setting. And I got a job when I came back to the UK in a school for deaf children and loved mm. every moment of it. But the Catholic nuns who were my bosses, if that's, I mean, they taught me a few bad habits, if you'll pardon the pun, but they also persuaded me to go and train to be a teacher. They pretty much dragged me kicking and screaming to university to train. My very first lecture there, this guy turned my idea of education upside down. He asked questions that didn't have answers. And I thought, well, well, hang on, what's this all about? I thought education was a case of learn some pretty dull answers and repeat them when you're told to, you know, 
And he said, no, education is about discovery. It's about curiosity. It's about investigation. It's about wondering. And he got me down a completely different path. And I ended up in teaching and loved every moment of it. And one of the things that I did was to try to explain to my students the benefit of stepping out of your comfort zone. Although it's, it's easier to stick to what you know, that's not going to help you to grow. And so being willing to stick your neck out, to take intellectual risks, to ask questions, to try things you've never tried before, to be willing to fail and examine that failure. And I wanted to explain all these things. And I try talking about Vygotsky and Piaget and goodness yeah. knows what. And I mean, the kids just glazed over. The um, zone of proximal development. The zone of proximal development, exactly. Yes. And yes. they were like, yeah, whatever, jog on, mate. And then I was one day drawing on the board this idea that you get worse before you get better. Typically, whenever we learn something new yeah. and different, Mike, mm -hmm. you were going to teach me how to set up all this equipment for podcast. Right. You know, if you guided me and talked me through it, I could probably do it quite well. But the moment you go off to see somebody else or leave mm -hmm. me off to my own devices, the chances are I'm going to stuff it up one way or another. I'm going to get it wrong and put something in the wrong place and I'm going to get worse. So I'm going to go from having some early success to then struggling with it the moment I'm left to my own devices. And yeah, yeah. I wanted to explain this to the kids because I felt that too many kids expected to go from A to B to C to D to E to F and so yeah. on. And so learning's just not like that. You go A, B, C, but then you go back to A and sometimes you go even before yeah. A and you're yeah. feeling like got worse and it can be very dispiriting unless you know that it's coming and then you can better prepare for it mentally, resourcefully and so on. You can prepare for it. And so I was drawing this out on the board and I drew this image that as people now refer to it as the learning pit, it's mm -hmm, just this mm -hmm. idea of getting worse before you get better. Yeah. One of the kids said, well, that looks like a pit. And I said, well, it does. And I don't know if it had anything to do with this was in a, an ex coal mining town. Right. But anyway, this idea of pit stuck and I shared it with a few colleagues and they liked it and mentioned it at a teacher's conference. They liked it there and there's hundreds of millions of versions of it. And it seems like the type of language that would resonate with a 13, 14 year old, it can connect to those really challenging moments where to your previous point about your story, James. Kids can just check out on education. Since we're talking psychology, it's the whole idea of learned helplessness. If it doesn't mm. seem like I'm going to get out of the pit, why should I even put myself out there to begin with? And that's why having your story, and then as I was reflecting on preparing for this show, thinking about all of our stories really over the last few years, we've been up against some challenges. Folks have had to deal with hardship in ways that maybe we weren't expecting and that's certainly true the mm. people we're teaching and the mm. folks that we're working with and then how do we inspire and both normalize that it's hard and that you're going to be in the pit but then also get people to believe that they mm. can actually get out of it on the other side carmen i'd love to bring you in here to hear a little bit about how you got started in your professional life and then how that mm. ultimately has landed you with James and the learning pit. It's funny, every time I hear James tell his story, I realize what opposite ends of the spectrum we are in terms of what led us to this point, but it actually works really well because we both want the same things and we can bounce ideas off of each other from 
very, very different places. So I grew up in an educator family. My dad was a teacher. My aunt was a teacher. I had cousins and other aunts and uncles, just lots and lots of teachers. And I grew up in a very kind of a white class, very stable community where education just worked for almost everybody. I saw it working for me and for my classmates. And so very early on, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. I liked my teachers. I felt like they added a lot to my life and I wanted to do the same thing. But what was interesting is once I got into teaching, very quickly I realized how many students it wasn't necessarily easy for or working for when I was on that end of being a teacher. I tended to get classes in this first school where I taught that were really varied. So I had students who were identified as gifted, and then I had students who had learning disabilities. And I also had a lot of very privileged students, much like my growing up. But then I had some students who didn't have role models who taught them how to do school. And I quickly realized that those students with the learning disabilities, those students who had either behavior issues or didn't have those role models were just left behind because the structures that we had in the schools were not set up for them to succeed. So I felt like I was kind of pushing against a pretty strong bureaucracy just to try to find ways for them to be successful. So from that point, my career has been entirely focused on how we can do better in our education system. And that's really what led me to to James's work back in 2007. Mm. You know, I had that huge gap of students who were identified as gifted and students who had learning disabilities. And I could not get students willing to take risks, especially those higher students. And So that's when I came across the learning pit. I'd already been using Carol Dweck's work on learned helplessness at the time, found that the learning pit was a way to help the kids to see that journey and appreciate that journey. So from there, every move I've made from teacher to principal of a school to a assistant regional superintendent overseeing professional development in our area, it's all been about trying to find ways to improve education. You know, I I never, ever was going to leave public education because I'm very committed to that. And I do believe we can make changes. But what led me to join the Learning Pit team was that it is of all of the organizations I've seen, it's the one that's the most responsive. I believe that we can use this framework and the work that we do. James was the first researcher, author that I interacted with who didn't just try to tell me how things should be. I had met many who were genius. I mean, absolute geniuses and had done phenomenal research and have great ideas. But when I would have a conversation with them, it was almost like them taking their information and dumping on me. This is what we need to do in education. Whereas James was asking me more questions than telling me, (laughs) giving me answers. That is the spirit in which we work. And that's what encouraged me to leave public education. Last we caught up, James, it was in 2020. A lot has happened over the last two years. I think, Mike, it might be good to go back even one more stage. Imagine if, uh, say, four years ago, we had been told a pandemic was on its way. Well, I mean, we were told, but imagine that we (laughs) listened and we'd actually taken it on board and prepared. For it, if we could go back now, imagine what different preparations we would make. And I would be willing to bet my entire mortgage that most teachers would say, I would spend time ensuring that my kids, my students are more resilient, more independent. They're better able to study by themselves. They're better able to form their own collaborative study groups whether online or through a perspex window because they're supposed to be isolating. There would be so many factors, so many things that we would prepare, better prepare for. 
And I don't want to call the learning pit a pandemic, but it's like a microcosm of that. It's like saying, you know what? Challenges are on their way. We're going to struggle in one way, shape or form. You're going to come across things that you will struggle with, whether that is in school or outside of school, whether it's beyond school. You will find things where you don't know what the answer is. You don't know where to look. You don't know where even to start. Mm. So don't be shocked by that. Know that it's coming. And let's imagine that's happening. What would we do? How would we organize ourselves? What problem-solving strategies or organizational strategies or information-gathering strategies could we use to help us to get through that? And that's in effect, what the learning pit seeks to do. I'm not trying to paint some pessimistic story of life, but it's a bit like resilience. I mean, I wish yeah. kids didn't have to be resilient, but you know what? They do have to be because we're all going to come across things that are going to test us and try us. And we're going to have bad days as well as good. We're going to have bad learning experiences as well as good. I think it's better to look at what we can do about that when we find it. And then actually we get so hooked on it, we seek out even more challenges. We choose to be out of our comfort zone. One of the pieces of research that worries me a lot is that when we give students choice, all too often they learn less, not more. And that's not because choice is a bad thing. Choice is a very good thing, but they choose, typically choose, the things they're comfortable with. This is kind of like the marshmallow test, which is <laughs> a bit of a joke at times, but the idea that you put a marshmallow in front of a kid and you say, eat this right now, or if you don't eat it, I'm going to give you two in a couple of minutes. By the time you're done asking the question, the marshmallow frequently is gone. We have trouble delaying gratification. We want to do the easy thing. However, where I think you have something going at the learning pit is that people understand the aspiration of being a great athlete, the aspiration of being really good at things. There is the idea of going to the gym and practicing and that by virtue of, you know, hard fun and or the virtue of powering through no pain, no gain. Pain is weakness leaving the body. Whatever doesn't kill us makes you stronger. There's a whole bunch of those things out there. There are ways to connect, not just the pit, but the idea of getting out on the other side. Piggybacking on what James was talking about, how this pandemic has really helped educators, all of us really, to know the types of skills and attitudes that, that we realize we need in order to get through some kind of a challenge like the pandemic. And I think the hardest part for the education organization right now is that Teachers, administrators, parents, they know that these things that we need to be developing within students, they know that we need to be developing resilience. They know that we need to be helping students to find ways to regulate themselves while they're in the learning environment. We know all of these things. We know this is what needs to happen. But unfortunately, the pace and the expectations and the occurrences that happened during the pandemic have forced people almost to go back to what they were comfortable with because it's the only option. Even though we learned a lot through the pandemic, so many schools have gone back to what they were doing because they don't have the 
mental space to to make those changes. And they're unfortunately having to spend a lot of their funding on COVID-related right. things or non-academic. What we've seen is that a lot of schools have just gone back to what they were doing before, even mm-hmm. though they don't want to. They know that's not what's best. And they're being told um, at the same time that they need to catch up. So it's like, you've fallen behind. Go right. back to what you were doing before. Let's not talk about the trauma and let's go faster with this population that just went through a lot so that they can catch up for this loss that we're talking about when, yes. you know, in reality, a lot of the loss, I think, is more an emotional something, which is also why I like the whole notion of resilience, because as much as I like trauma informed and understanding trauma, at the end of the day, it's about trying to land on the other side, getting through the ordeal. And that's why Mm -hmm. I do like the framing that you and team have brought. I want to add one more thing. You absolutely nailed it on the head there. This idea of seeing that either the trauma-based or the social-emotional as something separate is also a big concern. We're seeing many examples where we have educators who feel like they need to be addressing that separate from the academics. And yep. And I love that you picked up on the resilience idea because obviously we can't teach children resilience in the educational setting if we're not doing it through an educational means. So if we're looking at resilience and regulation and social emotional health and we're treating it separately from the learning, we're doing a disservice to the students because we're not showing them how to learn. Everything is completely contextual. What we want to do is to find out what the things are that are happening in the school that are working and working well and emphasize those in in building a learning culture. So putting those pieces together. And that's the stuff that I'm telling you they don't have time for right now. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. so much pressure on schools, like you said, to try to catch up, to create new procedures and protocols and follow mandates and everything. And so what we are able to do, we don't have to think about any of that. We can simply come in, look at a learning environment, help connect the pieces for the organization, what it is that's working, what maybe is working against that, What are the things that they can maybe stop doing? What are the things that are the most impactful on learning and how they can shift that? So it's not like drop everything that you're doing. Here's a new program. It's about taking that learning culture that already exists and just tweaking it. So we come in as sort of the outside observers, but then also James has so much very good research knowledge and teaching strategies that align with that research that help people to see how they can take this theory and take the issues that they see as the most pertinent to the learning environment and then put it into practice. Could I connect both of those points then? Mike, you mentioned the marshmallow experiment earlier on and Walter Michelle, I mean, it was in 72 or I think like the early 70s anyway, yeah, Stanford. Yeah. And it was with four-year-olds and there was this idea that like, here's a marshmallow. The option was a marshmallow or an Oreo cookie. I don't know if I'm allowed to say Oreo. Is that like advertising and not allowed they, to Oreo, Nabisco, Nabisco come at me. The <laughs> rates are reasonable. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. Other nice chocolate biscuits are available. But anyway, so it's like a marshmallow or an Oreo cookie. And yeah, as you say, there it is. That's yours. We're going to go out when we come back. If you've still got yours, you get a second one. And a whole load of kids just ate theirs. Yeah. And, but other kids didn't. And. They then tracked those kids right the way through. And I mean, those kids now are in their 50s, but at the revisit point, they're in their 40s. And there was a remarkable correlation between those who had waited and they typically were leading much more stable lives. They yeah. had a profession, they had a career, 
their relationships were enduring, whereas the opposite was said of the kids who had just eaten their marshmallow. But I think the interesting part of it is, what did those kids who waited, what did they do? What had they learned to do? Mm -hmm. And that's where we're trying to operate is, so some kids have already learned how to, but there's a huge load of kids who haven't. And I would suggest the trauma-informed education that we're looking at, the pandemic has increased the number of kids for whom it doesn't work. Yeah. If I can just jump slightly, I think one of the problems we've got in education is it works for some kids. Mm -hmm. And therefore, that's our justification. Look, it worked for Carmen. Yeah. Clever kid, she did well. You know, it works for a lot of kids who are intrinsically motivated, had good support systems outside of school. It works for them. Yeah. What about all the other kids? Mm -hmm. Well, that's where we're operating. So how can we teach kids to, in effect, wait, to defer that gratification? That's mm -hmm. one of the things that we do. So it's not just sit and stare at the cookie. Right. It's what questions can you ask? What puzzles can you solve? What could you look for? What can you be interested in? And it's helping them to develop these mental strategies, these life strategies, we might say. And that's where we're coming in. So as Carmen's saying, as an organization, we're not dropping in and saying, right, here's how to do it. It's, right. well, where are you at? And if I might keep going with the marshmallow experiment for a moment, how many kids are waiting? Because in effect, Right. We need to understand why are they waiting and what can we do to replicate that? But then how many kids are not waiting? What can we do to help with those kids? I'm just writing an article about growth mindset, an updated version. And it's fascinating that when you look at some of the most recent meta-analyses, that growth mindset does not work globally. Hmm. It works specifically. So for kids who are from low socioeconomic or they are educationally disadvantaged in some way, it can make a dramatic difference. But for kids who have already succeeded and believe their success is because they were born to succeed, should growth mindset gets in the way. And so then you have to keep reminding yourself there is not one silver bullet. There is not one approach to education that works, which is why Carmen's saying we've got to understand the context. And we see too many organizations coming in with the one size fits all big package. There you go, run this. And you look for the effect on the kids. It's going to have an effect on anyway, but what about all the other kids? And that's where we're most interested in mm. what the learning pit is, right? So who's in the learning pit? How can we help them? Absolutely. It reminds me of Todd Rose's work, One Size Fits None. The End of Average is his book. If folks haven't read it, it's a really good one where it does talk about one of the analogies they make is the design of the cockpit in fighter jets, where if you design based on the average height, it mm. winds up working pretty much for no one. But then if you design it so that it's adjustable based on your height, then both your five foot four pilot and your six foot eight pilot can both fit into the cockpit. I am curious how broad this is and whether you've thought about applying it outside of your context. As much as I love growth mindset, I feel like we need more language and we need more models out there for people to understand what's going on and to get that inspiration. Have you thought about other dimensions beyond K-12 for the learning pit? Shall we say yes and no? There are people in business, for example, and sport 
particularly who mm. have and are using the learning pit quite a lot. I do regularly work with some golfing foundations and looking at how that can apply to youth coaching. The learning pit recently appeared in the financial times here in the UK and it's all about business. Yeah. My passion, Carmen's passion is education. Sure. And pre-K 12 education is where we're at. The fire burns brightly for us in those areas, but yeah, we're interested in any type of learning and, and when invited, we do venture out into the big, bad world, uh -huh. corporate and enterprise and sport and work with them also. But you know, our love is in education and particularly the public education. Yeah. And then building on that, Carmen, for educators, are there ways in which you've seen the learning pit in action in terms of their experiences over the last few years, like it does seem like you have a good knack for empathy with what folks on the other side have been going through. You were a teacher, you've been in education your whole career. Any thoughts on what it's been like for teachers over the past few years and any ideas or notes or rays of hope we can continue to provide them because it is, it's a difficult profession and it is a place where many of our listeners might be teaching day to day. Any thoughts on what it's been like over the last few years and what the framework that you're talking about? might be able to do to help them? Yeah, absolutely. One of the models that we've shared recently when we've talked to it, especially leaders about change and making change and improvement, is this difference between a U and a V. If you think about the U almost looking like the learning pit where you spend some time at that bottom examining the difficulties and understanding what it is that put you there and what are the conflicts that you're dealing with and that you're trying to address. Whereas a V, you think about that is just a tiny little point and you bounce right back out. And I think the what we've seen is a lot of people wanting to do more of the V, just like, okay, we've hit rock bottom, let's just bounce right back out. Then that goes to what I was talking about earlier, that we're not then making the changes based on what we learned. We learned a lot about the pandemic. And so what I've seen and what James and I have seen actually across the world, because just in the last year, we've been able to travel again. So we've spent some time in Australia, in Japan, in Scandinavia, in the UK and the US. And I think the biggest takeaway is how similar everything is. I mean, educators across the world are dealing with a lot of the same, the same issues. And the Learning Pit is a great framework for the adults as well, because I think many of the adults are not feeling comfortable being in that space of learning mm -hmm. and realizing that they don't necessarily know what the answer is and they have to take the time to figure it out. So the Learning Pit is a really good affirmation for leaders and teachers who are engaged in the activity that they want for their students. You know, we've got a lot to learn and we're not going to be able to get it from, like James said, a silver bullet or a one book or a one strategy. It's about spending that time to examine and to be okay with the fact that we don't know what's next. And mm -hmm. so the learning pad actually is a great framework for that as well. And many, many people are right there at the bottom of the pit trying to figure out, this is what we used to believe about education. We learned this from the pandemic. How do we then put those two things together? And what is it going to take to build and to get us out of the learning pit? And the ones who are taking the time to do that are definitely going to see the most impact and positive impact on yeah. student learning. Yeah, yeah. And then James, the other thing that this brings to mind, I've heard it discussed really in the context of early childhood ed and as a parent of a soon to be four-year-old, that's really top of mind for me in a lot of ways, is the idea of developing a learner identity where you actually believe you can learn. And it does mm -hmm. feel like we're at this 
inflection point in a lot of ways where folks are questioning the value of education very much mm -hmm. in the way that in your story, you were in essence at the bottom of the learning pit in your journey mm -hmm. where you were questioning, will education really give me anything back? Maybe you felt like you've been betrayed a little bit and that trust wasn't there. That's certainly true for some subset of the population nowadays, even if you look at trust of higher ed and other institutions mm -hmm. is trending perhaps in a negative direction. How do you think about tapping into that learner identity for folks who maybe feel like education isn't for them? I think one of the ways in which I would answer that would be, and that, that question, it, that could keep us going for the next five hours, I'm sure, <laughs> and then some. I think one way is to think about what's the purpose of education generally, broadly speaking. And of course, I'm pretty sure that in every context, certainly that Carmen and I have ever worked in, they would say, well, certainly to help them to be literate, help them to be numerate. Okay. And then how do we branch out? And then they start talking about confidence mm -hmm. and being imaginative and curious and mm -hmm. collaborative and creative. Pull all of those, what some people unfortunately call soft skills as if you know, they're not quite, anyway, for what it's worth, people call them soft skill. I might pull them together and in talking about learning how to learn. Mm -hmm. So rather than teaching history, if I think, how am I going to teach my students how to learn history? So I'm sat here and if I look out my window, I can see where the Vikings first landed on, in Britain in 793. Now I could go and study the Vikings. Right. Or I could use the Vikings as my opportunity to learn how to learn, learn how to ask questions, learn how to decide which are the most pressing or the most relevant or the most thought-provoking mm. questions, or the most difficult to answer questions. I could also learn how to gather information and decide which is relevant and not relevant and which I can trust. And so I could also learn how to put together a concise argument that puts for and against, for and against, and then here's my conclusion. I know that's kind of what we do. But it's about making that much more explicit. So my job is to help you to learn how to learn. And we're going to learn how to, and use one of those examples I've just mentioned, the context is the Vikings, or the context is a photosynthesis, or the context is, and then you start to look at it more. And so then the content becomes secondary and the aptitude, the skills, the attitudes, the abilities become primary. And so then I can say to my students, now, listen, I don't know whether you're going to need to know about the Vikings when you're older. I don't know whether you're ever going to use algebra in your life. I don't know whether you're going to need to know about photosynthesis. It depends what job you go into. It depends what hobbies you, you take up. But what I do know for absolute sure is you are going to need to be a good learner. You are going to need to be a very, very successful learner, no matter what you turn your hand to, no matter what profession, what job, what hobby you go into, you're going to have to be a very accomplished learner if you're going to get the most out of it. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I'm here to do. Being Europe, being literate is going to help you to access that. Yeah. And beyond that is I'm going to teach you how to learn and the 
context today is, and then whatever that might be. So it might be, I'm teaching Japanese for goodness sake. Well, how many kids in central Illinois where Carmen is need to speak Japanese? Well, it's about teaching them how to learn a language because then if they decide, well, Portuguese is more relevant, at least then they've learned how to mm -hmm. spot grammar rules, how to gather vocabulary, how to remember vocabulary, how to conjugate yeah. your verse, and so on and so on and so on. And it's that approach. Now, of course, we can take a, a, a good guess. I'm not saying content is irrelevant. We're still going to take a good guess. We're probably not going to teach Japanese. We're probably going to teach Spanish because it's probably going to be more relevant. I'm going to say it's 90% likely, whereas it is 100% likely that they need to be a good learner. And so it's taking that approach that, shall we say, Carmen and I have found very, very, very productive. And notice we're not adding anything new. This right. is not about getting teachers to do more stuff. Right. It's just about turning it on it ever so slightly to say, right, content is secondary. The learning, how to learn is primary. Yeah. And I, I really like that connection then back to building a learning culture where it becomes very much a higher order value of your organization so that it then permeates everything else, which is why it's flexible. And what you're talking about is also transferable skills then too, so that you're teaching mm -hmm skills that can be snapped into other domains. You can do that learning transfer in interesting ways. And this all to me connects back to the idea of the future of work. I like to talk occasionally about robots and about automation. Mm -hmm. Chat GPT just came out. My virtual co-host Nancy did voice what Chat GPT was saying for her. In all those contexts, when you think about how humans will relate to new jobs that we don't even know yet, they're going to need to a learn a lot of new things and then b rely on technology and other things to do a lot of the more simple regurgitation of facts to actually have access to that content we're getting closer to conclusion carmen as we wrap up i'd love to hear a little more about how you're thinking about the future and how you're thinking about the role of education in the future and how learning pit connects to all of that <laughs> That's a tall order. <laughs> you're not going to be graded. And if you're in a learning pit during your response, in essence, that's a more illustrative example. So go wherever you'd like with this. Okay. Well, I can kind of really build on what James was saying. And, you know, I thought your question was a good one. And what James said is just absolutely key to not only who we are and what we believe, but what I think will change education. And that is if we teach everyone, that's not just the students that are sitting in the classroom, but the teachers too how to learn, and we teach them to be learners, then we won't run into that issue that you were talking about where people feel like they're being let down by the teacher or by the organization because the onus is on us. And if we could develop an entire culture in the educational realm where everybody understood how to be learners and what our responsibility was in the process, we would have it made. And I do think that the Learning Pit offers such a great framework for that because it provides people with that sense that it's okay to have those really difficult feelings that you have when you're in the Learning Pit. And I think just really coordinating everything that goes into the learning, the social emotional part of it, the attitudes that you need to have, that resilience, all of it becomes coordinated. So I mean, I would love in the future for that to be what we're talking about and not the content, like James said. We do have to have content. That's how we teach. 
But right now the focus seems to be so much on the content and so much on specific strategies or this is the program you need to use or you need to do it this way rather than that global idea of this is what learning looks like. And the fact that we are a global company is such a huge advantage because I've gotten to see over the last couple of years traveling with James what learners look like in different parts of the world. And learning is learning. I can say that now. You know, it's not a theory. We all learn in very similar ways. And it's it is just about dealing with our context, but the broader aims of those attitudes and skills that you need to learn. Awesome. Yeah. And it does remind me when you were talking, one of the things that drives me crazy is what I call success theater, where people want to really talk about how wonderful the successful scenarios are. You think about social media as powering this, where making mm -hmm. it okay to fail and beyond that, making it even encouraged to fail. James, bringing this back to you, I, I frequently quote Nelson Mandela, I never mm -hmm. lose, I either win or learn. To bring this whole conversation home for us, I'd love to hear some concluding thoughts from you. And hopefully if our listeners are interested in any of this, you'll check out learningpit.org. You can find out what Carmen and James have going on. As folks head back to their everyday, do you have any concluding thoughts for us, James, to wrap up this conversation? So one of the ways in which I've heard the learning pit being used in the US is we need to avoid the learning pit. And that's actually the opposite to, to what I would be recommending. It's much better to design those desirable difficulties. And that's something we talked about last time round, Mike. And looking at ways that I can help all of my students at some point in their learning day to be out of their comfort zone, to be in that learning pit so that they then think, okay, so I recognize this. I know that I don't know what to do. So what, what my next steps? Do I seek out different information? Do I use a different strategy? Do I collaborate with somebody else? Do I ask a different question? I've come across something similar in a different context. Now let's draw on those. And that's the purpose is thinking about those skills and maybe thinking back to the pandemic and thinking, right, okay, if anything good's going to come out of it, what's the silver lining? Well, the silver lining would be to put ourselves back a few years and say, right, if we were going to navigate this better, what would we do? In education, I'm not talking about masks. I'm not talking about mandates and all that sort of thing. I'm talking about in education, what would we have done to better prepare our students so that they almost didn't miss a, a step. They just kept going pandemic or not, whether they're home tours or not, whether it was online or not, whether it was hybrid or not, whether it was masked or not, what would be the things that we would have taught them? And then make that your guiding star. Okay. I want them to be much more resilient, much more curious, much more independent, much more able to collaborate, much more willing to be self-starters rather than wait for the teacher to instruct them and tell them, you know, those are the sorts of things. And I think if we can remind ourselves of that, then that can be a really, really helpful guiding star for us. Awesome. Definitely some thought provoking ideas out there. You, you get pretty heady when you start thinking about learning how to learn and metacognition mm -hmm. and all the psychological concepts we talked about. And then you get the nice grounding in the narrative of the learning pit, your story. James, and your experiences, Carmen. Thank you so much to both of you for joining Thank us you. on today's show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Hopefully our listeners enjoyed the conversation. Like I said, if you're interested, check out 
learningpit.org. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. This is Trending in Education. Write us reviews. Do all the good things. We'll be back again soon. Thank you for listening.